Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. Mark, chapter 9, you can see the the title there about mountaintop lessons. And we've come to this passage that's that's really on the tail end of the of the transfiguration. It's only just a few verses, verses 9 through through 13. And it's it's a discussion that Jesus has with the disciples as he's coming off of the off of the mountain, hence the the title. And as I was preparing, I, I remember I remembered a, a lady um, named Brenda Brenda Collier and a song that that I used to to sing for her. She would she requested it all of the time. She had cancer, and I can remember her favorite saying to people was whenever someone would say why, she would always say why not me. And she loved the song, the uh, the God on the Mountain. You know that old song. She'd ask me to sing it all the time. In fact, she asked me to sing it at her at her graveside, which I did. No, sir, I will not. I'll sing it at your graveside. How's that? The song says, "The God on the Mountain is still God in the Valley," and that's. That's important for, for us to remember, and it's also, we're going to see how it's important for the disciples to remember that as well. In fact, they need to understand something, that the God that they saw on the mountain still has some work to do before they get to go to the mountain with Him. And if you've ever been on, on the mountain in, a, in your spiritual life, a mountaintop experience, as they, as, as they say, you understand that getting up there can be difficult... You also understand while you're up there, the view is amazing, but coming down the other side usually leads to some lessons. Wouldn't it be nice if we spent all of our Christian lives on the mountaintop? Well, one day you will. That'll be in heaven. There will be no sin. There'll be no tempter. There'll be no difficulty. There'll be no suffering. You'll be with Christ. And the best mountaintop experience that you've ever had here on, on earth in life will Will, will pale in comparison to what a never-ending period of time will be like whenever you're, you're, with the, you're with the Lord. But we have them here. We have the mountaintop experiences, and the view is amazing. We want to stay there, but those are there for lessons. And when we come down from the mountaintop, we, we have some lessons to, to learn. And I think that we ought to learn not only to love the mountaintop experiences, but actually learn to love the, the lessons that that come on the other side even even more. And Jesus gives some mountaintop lessons to the disciples as they come down the hill. And I want to read these few verses and then we'll we'll talk about it. Verse 9 of Mark chapter 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And then to turn the question 
back on them. And yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Now, this is Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus goes through the whole plan. This is for the disciples. He takes them far away. They begin with the confession that he is the Christ, the person, and then he unfolds the plan. You know, they struggle with the plan, and Jesus says, that's not only the plan for me, it's the plan for all of my, all of my followers. You're going to suffer, you're going to take up your own cross, and you're going to follow me. And then he takes Peter, James, and John, three of the disciples that needed the experience up on the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's called, and he unveils his, his glory. In the incarnation, what we celebrate at Christmas is the veiling of, of God. He takes upon himself human flesh. And here, Jesus pulls back the curtain for these three disciples, and they, he shows them the, the glory that, that will be in the kingdom. And, and Peter still being hung up on wanting the kingdom without the cross, says, Let, let's build three tabernacles right here. Us three will be the attendants of the tabernacles. God can meet with man here in this new mountain, this new place, and it'll be great. Let's have the kingdom now and forget about the cross and all that death stuff. And then a cloud appears, which is the Father confirming what Moses and Elijah were talking to the Son about. And, and God the Father says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him, Peter, and everyone else. And now they're coming down the, the mountain. The disciples wanted the cross to come. They wanted the, uh, they wanted the kingdom to come, I should say. They wanted it to come now, and they wanted it to come without a cross. Don't we all? I do. <laughs> I want all the spiritual blessings in the world... I want to be super Christian. I want to bear the spiritual fruit every day. I want to preach outstanding sermons to the people of God. And I want to do it all without difficulty and without suffering. Is there anybody in here like me? I want to be a skinny pig. I want to be able to eat anything that I want to eat and I don't want it to affect me. I don't want to gain any weight in the process. I want all of the blessings without any difficulty. But that's not reality, is it? The disciples wanted the kingdom to come. They wanted to come now. And they had confessed that Jesus was the Christ. They wanted it so bad that Peter had rebuked the Lord for even mentioning his death. I mean, can you get your mind around that? He just confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then he rebukes the Christ. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm going to die. And then Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to behold his glory... And they want to stay on the mountain. Peter interrupts Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. And the topic that they're talking about is his death. And Jesus tells them that the message on the mountain, what they were talking about on the mountain amongst themselves, is also the message in the valley. In fact, it's the only message. He is the Christ. But the suffering substitutionary death of the Messiah is the plan. Everyone who follows Him will deny themselves, will die to themselves, and will follow Jesus. And I think that's actually a really good gospel outline. I think that's better than ABC. Admit, believe, confess. 
DDF. Deny yourself, die to yourself, and follow Jesus. And yet, those who follow him will enter into the kingdom and will reign with Christ in glory, which is the whole purpose of the transfiguration. And Jesus gives the disciples a preview of that because he wants to anchor them in that confidence. What comes after suffering is glory. All of the hard stuff that you go through here and all of the maturity that that brings in your life is moving toward a point. And that horizon point is the kingdom, is heaven, is with Christ. And I'm looking forward to that day. Glory follows suffering. But the topic on the mountain was not the glory they see. It was the mission Jesus must accomplish. And that was the message that they're going to need to proclaim. And they needed to embrace that message in order to proclaim it. Because without the cross, there is no kingdom. And they have no message. And that's always been the message. That's what we saw last time. I mean, that's the whole purpose of Moses and Elijah being there. They're at the transfiguration. There's a conversation. And the conversation is about Jesus' departure in Jerusalem, his death. Those men represent the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. And they spoke to Jesus about the cross. Even the Father emphasizes that in the conversation. God the Father appears. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Not look at him. They needed to listen to him. Because his death is his mission. And his mission is their message. And it's our message. And now they're coming down the hill. And Jesus is going to speak. And he's going to reinforce. And he's going to... That truth, and he's going to give them some further lessons. And the Christian gospel is the proclamation of Christ crucified, risen again. Anything less than that is incomplete. Anything added to that is another gospel, which Paul says is no gospel at all. And I'm not sure why the church, or people that claim themselves to be the church, act like that they're ashamed of that. I don't understand why the gospel that we have embraced, that brings us into the kingdom, why we act like we have to add to that, or why we act like we have to take the rough edges off of that, when that is the very thing that translates us from death to life. You have no other argument. You need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's the gospel. And if the disciples are going to be messengers, and if you're going to be a messenger, you need to get that right. And so Jesus teaches them as they come off the mountain. And he teaches them three lessons on the the gospel message. And he does this in just a few verses. There's a command that he gives, begin with, to conceal. It's kind of strange. Then he deals with a question that they have about prophecy in verses 10 through 11. And then he points to the confirmation of this message about the gospel from from Elijah and then ultimately John the Baptist. Lessons on the gospel message. They need to make sure it's complete. They need to make sure it's in the right order. And they should expect certain things whenever they 
Proclaim it. Let's look at the first one. There's a command to conceal. A command to conceal. Look, if you would, at verse verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they'd seen, not to tell anyone about what they'd seen until, there's a, there's a time factor there, until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So, you, so you've got an order, a command not to tell, tell no one, and then you've got a period of time until the resurrection. It says he gave them orders. It's a commanded them. The word implies secrecy. Keep this secret. Don't tell anyone. I heard a number as I was studying this past week say, can you imagine that? Can you imagine seeing the transfiguration and not being able to communicate that to anyone other than the the other two guys that saw it with you? And Jesus is very concerned that the disciples understand the message. So much, he says, don't tell anybody about what you saw on the mountain until the mission is complete. Because the transfiguration is not going to make any any sense to the disciples until the resurrection. He tells them there's a period of concealment. Don't tell anyone. And that's going to be followed by a time of open proclamation. That's going to be when the sun rises from the dead. And he does that because he doesn't want them distorting the the message. He doesn't want them distorting... The gospel, it's not going to make sense till after the resurrection. And the disciples are happy to recognize him as the transfigured son, but not the humbled, suffering servant. I mean, Jesus understands what Peter was saying. Three tabernacles, let's bring the kingdom in right now. He doesn't want that message proclaimed. And if the disciples were turned loose at this moment, they'd proclaim the wrong message. And so Jesus commands them to keep silent. He doesn't want them running down the hill with messianic expectations, preaching about the vision that they saw, preaching about the kingdom when they still don't get the cross. And the command is not only because he wants them to get it, but this time factor that's there actually says there is no message for them to proclaim without the cross. Look at the second half. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they'd seen until... There's going to be a time when they're going to proclaim it. But it's not going to come until the resurrection. Now, this is different. You've heard before, we've heard in Mark over and over, this perplexing idea of don't tell anybody. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Don't tell anybody. Jesus does the miracle. Don't tell anybody. But this is the first time in the Gospel of Mark he says that there's going to be a time when you can tell somebody until the Son of Man rises from the dead. All the other times he just says, tell no one. They're going to tell no one about what they've seen, but there's coming a day when they're going to tell everyone. Not just what they've seen, but what they've heard and what they've handled. And without the cross and without the resurrection, there, there's no good news. There's no salvation. There's no kingdom. They don't have anything to tell apart from the, apart from the cross. There are lots of, of really, really good stuff. There's lots of really good stuff in the Bible. There's financial principles and parenting principles and, and, 
and prayer principles and all kinds of other things. But the ultimate message of the Bible makes no sense whatsoever without the cross of Jesus Christ. That is the centerpiece of the revelation of God. The fall would just be really, really bad news without the cross. The fact that there is a heaven would be would be wonderful news for God and the angels, but not for us without without the cross. There there is no message without the cross. Be careful sharing principles out of the Bible if you don't connect them to to the cross. You don't see them in light of the cross. It does it does people no good whatsoever if they save all the money in the world, even if they give money to God and they, they know how to, to stay out of out of out of debt and work really hard if they go to hell, right? But they can do all of that, and they can do it for the kingdom if they understand the cross. And the mention of the resurrection includes everything that is bound up in the resurrection. I mean, in order to be raised from the dead, you have to die. So it's the resurrection is at the end, so it's, it's, it's everything. And when that event comes, the command moves from tell no one to tell everyone. That's the command that we have today. I think sometimes we act like we're the disciples on the other side of the cross. We tell no one when we're commanded to tell everyone. And once Jesus accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do on the cross, he's going to rise from the dead in victory. He's going to conquer sin, death, and hell, and that's that's the true messianic mission. Messiah didn't come to usher in a kingdom, an earthly kingdom. The Messiah came to conquer sin, death, and hell and bring in a spiritual and an earthly kingdom. And once that's revealed, he'll be, he'll be proclaimed. This is not... I know it might seem odd when we come across these passages where, where we're on this side of the cross and Jesus says, don't tell somebody, like shutting up Revelation. But it's not anything new. It's all through the Old and New Testament. Daniel, in Daniel 12, 4 through 9, was told, quote, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. You probably remember John the Baptist in Revelation 10. He's told the same thing. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, John says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Don't include them in Revelation, John. God's got an appointed time. God's appointed time in the proclamation for the disciples will be after the resurrection. Jesus Himself came at God's appointed time. He died at God's appointed time during the Passover sacrifice so He could be seen as the Lamb of God. He'll come again at God's appointed time. You remember what the disciples are saying right before Jesus ascends into heaven, even after the resurrection, is now the kingdom? And what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the the day or the hour that the Father has set. But now is the time for to be my witnesses. Now is not the time for the kingdom, but now is the time to tell everyone. And right now, in Mark chapter 9, they're to tell no one. There's no proclamation of the Messiah until the cross because that's why it came. That's why it came. When the victory comes, then you'll shout it from the the housetop. That's the message. 
Christ, Him crucified, risen again. That's all we've got. That's all you need. So don't act like you need more. Stop leaving things out. Stop focusing on emotional needs and holes in your heart. Stop telling people that the gospel is about something other than Christ and His cross and the forgiveness of sins. Because Christ crucified is the nuclear option. I mean, that's the end game. There's, there's nothing more. There's no deeper life. There's no mystical visions. There's no second work of the Spirit that gives you special powers. There's no feeling tingly. You're going to be saved from your sins. <laughs> and if you understand that, what, what, what more is there than to be saved from your sins? And while that's a stumbling block to religious people and foolishness to the world who are perishing, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So get it right and make it complete. And don't be ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation. And so Jesus gives this command. Now the disciples still don't get it, so they ask a question about prophecy that begins in, in, verse, in verse 10. Not only do they need to get the, the message right, they need, it needs to be complete, but, but they need to get it in the, in the right order. And that's really what's going on here. Look at verse 10. They seized upon the statement, that statement discussing, uh, I'm sorry, they seized upon that statement discussing with one another what, what rising from the, the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You see, they seized upon the statement that they, it, it, it kind of got stuck in their mental spokes. That's what they started talking about. And then they, a question came in their minds. When they, when they seized upon this statement about the resurrection of the dead, they immediately asked, well, what about Elijah? What about what the Bible says about Elijah coming? If what you're saying is true, then, then where's Elijah? That's, that's what this means. Mark clearly shows that that's the, the, the trigger point, the sticking point, the death, the resurrection. But the question about Elijah points to the order of when that's going to happen. This doesn't mean that they don't know what the resurrection means. They've seen Jesus raise someone from the dead. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. You remember that back in Mark, in Mark 5. It doesn't mean they're going, hmm, what does he mean by resurrection? It also doesn't mean that they don't believe in one. They saw one. And the disciples believed that there was a resurrection coming, just like certain Jews today believe that there's a resurrection coming. I told you before, you can, you can go several years ago when the number was quoted to me, so I don't know what it is now. <clears throat> but you can go by a grave plot in a Jewish cemetery on the, on the slope of the Mount of Olives, the side of the, the Kidron Valley, and up the other side, and here's the Temple Mount, and you can buy a grave plot there, and this was seven, eight years ago, and it was $100,000 for a single grave plot, because they believe in the resurrection, and they believe that when the Messiah comes, they want to be that close to the kingdom, and they're buried with their feet facing the kingdom, so they could just stand up and walk right in. 
hundred grand. I'll take the ninety nine ninety five version in a field in West Virginia. Because I'm coming out of the ground when Jesus comes. I don't have to be buried feet first. I can be buried with no feet. It doesn't matter. When Jesus comes, I'm coming out of the ground and I'm going into the kingdom. But I'm doing that because he went to the cross and rose from the dead. And I trusted in that. The issue that, uh, that with the, was the resurrection of the dead was to happen on the last day. And that brought the kingdom. And Elijah was to come right before the kingdom. I think this was really helpful to me, so, uh, of what was in their mind. <clears throat> so I'm going to read it to you. I think it will help you understand their, their thinking. This is John MacArthur. The disciples believed what all Jews believe, that the Messiah will come, and when He comes... It will be the, the, the day of the Lord experience, which is an Old Testament term for judgment. He'll conquer his enemies. He'll then bring salvation to the Jews. He'll then elevate Israel to world supremacy. And he'll rule the world from Jerusalem. Having destroyed all of the enemies of Israel and all the enemies of God, he'll establish his kingdom of righteousness, peace, knowledge, which will fill the earth. And the Messiah will be worshipped. And he'll pour out divine blessing across the planet while crushing any rising evil. The nature of life on the earth will be dramatically altered and everything will be glorious, joyful, and peaceful. That's what the disciples expected. And when they heard Jesus repeatedly say that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be arrested, that he was going to be killed, and that he was going to rise, rise, from, rise from the dead, rise again... That did not compute. It was a horrendous thought. And it didn't make any sense to them. They couldn't understand what Jesus was saying because Elijah was supposed to come before that happened. That's exactly what Malachi declares. Elijah was coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, who did they just see on the mountain? Moses and Elijah. And yet Elijah's gone. And they said, the kingdom. And Jesus said, no kingdom. In fact, you tell no one about the kingdom until the resurrection. That doesn't make any sense to them. So they're asking the question. And he didn't just say the resurrection in general. He says, the Son of Man who's going to rise from the dead. The Son of Man doesn't die. He's God. He's How can He rise? And, and why are we to keep silent if the... The kingdom was, was here. We just saw Elijah. The, the discussion wasn't about the nature of the resurrection. It was about the order of the resurrection. So they asked Jesus in verse 11, Why is it that the scribes say Elijah must come first? This is not rejecting what he's saying. They're receiving what he's saying. And then they're looking to what they, they remember from Jewish Sunday school class. It's like saying, I've read the passages, and it says Elijah is to come, so what gives? And if you're the Messiah, where is he? And more importantly, where's the revival that's supposed to come? 
when the hearts of the fathers will be restored to their children and the, the hearts of the children to their fathers, like Malachi says, not only before the, uh, before the kingdom, there's going to be a great revival. We don't see any revival. In fact, it's just us and you. No Elijah, no massive repentance, no national revival, and both are supposed to happen before the kingdom. And the problem is they had it out of order. And Jesus says you have to get it in the right order. The kingdom comes after the cross. And when you're sharing the gospel, you need to get the order right as well. Don't promise things that God doesn't promise. Don't tell people that if you come to Jesus, your life is going to be wonderful and you're not going to have any difficulties. This is not heaven. Make sure you get the right order. Heaven is coming. Make sure you don't promise more than God does because most false gospels today have the, have the order of blessing wrong. Your best life now, the order of blessing is wrong. You're a child of the king, so God wants you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And Jesus says, if you're my true followers, you'll suffer here. Then the kingdom comes. You're going to take up my cross, your cross, and, and you're going to follow me. And you're going to follow me right into the kingdom. So the kingdom is coming. Remember the purpose of the transfiguration was to root them in the fact that, that this is coming, but they're going to go through suffering. And, the, and that's going to, it's going to propel them and motivate them whenever they go through the whenever they go through the, the suffering. And if you make promises to people that the Bible doesn't make in order to get them to come to Christ or to get them to think things, make Jesus look attractive or the kingdom look attractive, then, then, then that's not going to be their reality and they're, going to, they're either going to fall away or they're going to misinterpret and come back and reinterpret things in the Scripture. Well, that must be the reason I've got problems today. It must be the devil. Or it must be sin. Or Whatever. When you could be under absolute excruciating suffering today because you're following Jesus and doing all the right things, isn't it the natural inclination to think, I must have done something wrong if I have difficulty? And Jesus says, if you're my true followers, you'll, there will be difficulty, but then comes the kingdom. Then comes the kingdom. And look at the answer and the question that, that he gives in order to get it right. There's a, there's a confirmation from the person of John the Baptist. He confirms the Scriptures and then points them to John the Baptist. He builds anticipation for the coming kingdom and then he brings them back to the cross. At verse 12. They say, why is it the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he says in verse 12, he said to them, Elijah does come first. The scribes are right. Because the Bible is what the Bible says. And he's going to restore all things. Everything that Malachi promised about Elijah is going to take place. But watch what he does here. And yet, how is it written? You're focused on Elijah. How is it written that the Son of Man? Where is it written? In the Scriptures, how is it written that the Son of Man, that He will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Elijah does come first. He restores all things. He first confirms the Scriptures, what the prophets foretold and what they learned in Jewish Sunday school. 
And then he asked them about something that they must have missed from the Scriptures in Sunday school, which was about the Son of Man suffering. You're, you got Elijah right in Malachi, but, but you don't have Isaiah 53 right. How is it written of the Son of Man that he'll suffer many things and be treated with contempt? They're saying, but the Scripture says Elijah must come first and then the kingdom, right? And Jesus says, right. But he points them to another thing the Old Testament says about the way the kingdom is going to come, the way that the kingdom is going to dawn, the way the door is going to be opened. And that's going to be the suffering death of the, of the Messiah. Now, what's the whole idea about the, the Elijah coming and John the Baptist coming, which Jesus is going to say next? Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to clear the way before me. And the Lord's going to come, but before he comes, he's going to send a messenger, a forerunner, a herald, to prepare the way. We still do it today, but in in ancient times, whenever a king was going to show up somewhere, whenever a ruler was going to show up somewhere, he sent word ahead of time that he was coming so people could get ready. They didn't have telephones, they don't, they don't have the press corps or mail. And it's a big deal whenever a ruler shows up, just like, just like today. You might think of the, the President of the United States going to visit Asia or wherever. He, he makes an announcement. I'm going here, here's my itinerary, and you need to prepare. It's planned, it's pre-announced, and people prepare for, for his arrival. It's the same way. And it's going to be the same way when... When the Messiah comes, both the first time and the second time, the king sends a herald to let the people know he's coming for them to get ready. And Malachi says that God's going to send Elijah beforehand so the people can prepare. Before the day of the Lord, before the judgment of the ungodly, before the establishment of the kingdom, Elijah is going to come and the people will believe. That's the prophecy. Those who don't believe, the judgment's coming. And that's going to happen then, but there's something else that has to happen first. Look at verse 13. Now notice he says in verse 12, Elijah does come first and restore all things. So he doesn't deny what Malachi says. He doesn't deny that there's a coming kingdom. He doesn't deny that a literal Elijah is going to come. But he points them in verse 13 of what has to come first and what's already taken place. And then he brings them back to the cross. Verse 13. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come. And they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. The spirit of Elijah has already come in John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was conceived somewhere around the same time as Jesus. And Elijah, figuratively, not literally, in John the Baptist. And he comes doing Elijah's work and he prepares for the, for the Messiah. John chapter 1, verse 21. John the Baptist, when he's asked, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. But Jesus says he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
John came in the spirit of Elijah preparing the people for Jesus' first coming. And before Jesus comes as the conquering judge in the great day of the Lord, there's his second coming, Elijah, will come then. In fact, I think he's one of the two prophets in Revelation. John prepares for the cross. Elijah prepares for the kingdom. John announces the kingdom's dawning. Elijah announces the kingdom's completion and also the judgment. And then he brings them back to the cross because what happened to John is also going to happen to Jesus. And that has to happen for the kingdom to unfold, period. Whatever they did, they did to him whatever they wished. And Jesus, as the Son of Man, is going to face a similar fate. But then He's going to rise from the dead. And after He rises from the dead, they're going to proclaim. And John faced the same like Elijah did. Elijah faced a a weak king and a wicked queen, Ahab and Jezebel. And John faced the same in Herod, Antipas, and Herodias. And Herodias succeeds as Jezebel failed And just like that, the Son of Man's enemies will seem to succeed. Jesus is going to the cross, and they're going to arrest Him, and they're going to seem like they're going to have their way, and He's going to be nailed to a cross. He's going to die. He's going to give up the ghost. He's going to put Him in the ground. They're going to roll a stone in front of it, and it's going to look like absolute defeat. But then He's going to rise from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, that's the message, that's the time, that's what you have to proclaim. And that's going to open up the doorway of the kingdom. The one that's coming in the future and the one that you get to proclaim now. And that's opened by the cross and the resurrection. And John's come to announce that. Lessons on the gospel message, make sure it's complete. Make sure you're not sharing it half-baked, half-cocked. Jesus is the Christ. The Christ died for your sins. And He rose from the dead. Don't add to that. Don't take away from it. Make sure it's in the right order. Heaven's not now. Heaven's coming. But when you do, make sure it's expectant. Oh, there's a kingdom coming. And all that the Bible tells us will take place and we have that to look forward to. Shoot by your heads. I don't know where you you're at in your walk this morning. Whether you're on the mountain, I don't know whether you're in the valley. I don't know where you're coming down the hill. But I can tell you with absolute assurance that God is the same in all three places. He's the same in the spiritual highs. He's the same in the spiritual lows. And He's the same everywhere in between. And I can also tell you with absolute assurance that Jesus Christ is God. And if you'll look to Him, and you'll follow Him, all that He says... He'll give you eternal life if you don't have it. And He'll walk with you as you follow Him 
Amen. He'll come for you again. And He'll bring you right into the kingdom. And that's the message that brings people from death to life and the one that's freely offered to you today. The question is, what do you do with it? What will you do with it? It's offered, and the command given to you is repent and believe. And if you don't repent and you don't believe, then all of those promises and all of those blessings are not yours. But if you will, He'll save you, He'll forgive you, He'll give you purpose in life, and He'll give you a home in heaven. And that's my prayer for you today. Father, I do thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Father, I confess to You that I don't like difficulty and I don't like suffering. In fact, I expend way more energy trying to get out from under it than would probably be expended going through it. And yet I thank You that over and over and over You're gracious and kind and You bring me back to the same truth that you who have begun a good work in me will continue it, will perform it until the day that I see you face to face and that the greatest times of spiritual growth typically come through the, the greatest pressures and suffering. And Father, I thank you that the Lord Jesus was obedient in that suffering and was obedient to the point of death. And I pray for anyone here here this morning that's never trusted Christ that today they would, they would see His friendly face and that they would bring all they are in their sin to Him and receive the forgiveness that He offers and then get up and follow Him. Thank You for this time of year, Lord, that reminds us of all these things. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.